All right, let's jump right in. Um, last week we started talking about the church, and we, we talked specifically about the church in terms of our commitment to the body of Christ. Uh, we talked about church membership, but we did it in a, in a way, we framed it in a way to talk about it through the, the love of Jesus. We said that commitment to the people of God is a great way of displaying um, Christ's love to the world. In John 13, he said, I'm giving you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. So we talked about some descriptors of real love. And what we said is that real love uh, is a choice. You know, that um, it's not just all emotion. It's not just all, um, you know, raw passion. It's a choice. And you choose to love someone in the same way. Jesus chooses to love you. It's not because you're lovable necessarily. It's just because he's good and he loves you. And He's chosen to love you today. So we talk about love as a choice. We talked about how love speaks the truth. It's not just all um, flowers and roses, but love speaks truth. And what we learn with Jesus is that He's this incredible merger of grace and truth. I don't know of a better picture than John chapter 8 with the woman who's caught in adultery. And um, everybody's wanting to stone her and they bring Jesus in. They say, what do you say? And He says, um, well, he who's without sin, throw the, throw the first stone. And, so one by one, the, the crowd dismisses, and it's just him and her, right? And he has this intimate conversation. He says, uh, where are your accusers? And she says, they've all gone. And then Jesus says to her, then neither do I accuse you. There's grace. And then he says, now go and sin no more. There's truth. We have this beautiful marriage of grace and truth in Jesus. And what we say is real love speaks the truth. And so as a people, we want to speak truth to one another. All right. So then thirdly, we talked about real love um, in the sense that love is committed um, in uh, next month. No, this month I get to celebrate 10 years of marriage with my lovely wife. And it's not all been easy. Right. Marriage is hard. How many of you say amen to that? Marriage is hard. It's probably hard because of me. Like it's she's the easy one. I'm the hard one. But she's been with me. Way to go for 10 years. Right. <laughs> She's, she's been very faithfully committed, and as have I. We've been committed to each other, and that's what real love is. When we look to Jesus, He is the one who's committed to us. We are the one who's hard to be with, and He's the faithful husband to a very unfaithful bride. We thank God for His loving commitment to us. So love is a choice. Love speaks the truth, and love is committed. And we, we look at that love... And we hear what Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And so we learn that the church is this incredible place where we get to choose to love each other, where we speak truth to one another, and we're committed to one another. That's, that's what the church is. It's we're putting the love of Christ on display. Well, that's a very zoomed in picture. That's like person to person picture. What I want to do right now is take like that drone flyover picture and get sort of a 30,000 foot view. And I want to ask the question this morning, what is the church? What is it? Maybe a better question is who is the church? And so uh, as a starting point for us, I want you to take your Bibles and find your place in first Peter. The letter uh, Peter is writing first Peter. He's writing to the church that has scattered I'm going to give you a little bit of background before we read the text together. So in the year A.D. 64, there's a terrible fire in Rome. Um, you, you've heard the phrase probably Rome is burning, Rome is burning. Well, it really did 
burn, right? It really happened. In AD 64, Rome burned to the ground. And um, at the time, the emperor was Nero, famous emperor, right? Well, Nero hated Christians. And he took opportunity, he took the opportunity of this tragedy, this incredible burn, um, to redirect, and he actually blamed the Christians. He blamed, blamed the church for arson. He said it was them. They, they lit our city on fire. Well, you can imagine what happened. And Nero, he got what he wanted. There was great persecution that arose for the church all around Rome. If you, if you claimed the name of Christ, you were greatly persecuted. Even so bad that you know, Rome was burned, well, what they would do is if you claimed Christ and you didn't reject Him, they, they would take you many times and impale you, put you up on a pole, and light you on fire. And at night, it was the way they lit up the city, by lighting up Christians. Nero is said to have lit up his garden with people, literally. It was a terrible time to follow Christ in terms of persecution. And so Peter is writing this letter to a people who have dispersed. They've scattered because they're afraid for their lives. And so what what do you say to a people who are afraid for their lives, who are being killed? Many of them who are being killed. What do you say? Well, let's look. Why don't you go ahead and stand with me? First Peter chapter one. We'll just start there. We're going to skip over and really focus in in chapter 2. But 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll just begin at the beginning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. So he's talking about those who have scattered. And here's where they are now. They're in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling of With his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. Kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. So he's telling them all about what's coming to you if you die, right? There's an inheritance coming. Jesus resurrected from the dead. You can have a living hope because of Jesus. He says, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith. You're obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I want you to skip over into chapter 2. Verses 9 and 10, I put these, this text on the teaching guide I gave you, but it's going to be on the screen in the English Standard Version. So I, I would encourage you, I want us to read it aloud together. And I want you to imagine that one of us last night was lit ablaze and we watched one of our brothers and sisters die. 
And we've just received a letter that is intended to encourage us just to hold fast, to keep the faith in the midst of really hard persecution. And so we, we see and we read. I want us to read this aloud together, these two verses. You ready? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God, be our teacher today. Please use your word to encourage us to be a bold, passionate church For your glory among all nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So I want to talk to us today about this question. What is the church? Again, we're saying the better question probably is who is the church? So if you don't take away anything else, I want you to get this. The church is a people. (laughs) And if you were watching online, you just, You're you're done. The, uh, our, uh, our, our camera just hit, bit the dust. So if you're watching online, I hope you're okay. All right. Um, the church is a people. The church is a people. This is what this text tells us. Um, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. I want that to really resonate with you today. The church is not an organization church is not a non-profit. church is not a 501c3. The church is not a building. The church is not a place. The church is not a, a, a do-good-deeds type of entity. The church is a people. It is a people. That's an interesting phrase. We've got this idea of people. That's plural, right? People. We should say we, the church are people, right? But no, it's a people. We are a people. That's what the text tells us. What, what does that mean? This idea of plurality and yet singular. A people. Well, we are a one and yet many people. What does that mean? Why should it encourage us? What I want us to do is, uh, and, and I learned in the first service, I got to do this a little faster, okay? Uh, so buckle up, we're going to go a little quicker. What I want to do is. I want to paint a picture for you. Again, a 30,000 foot view. A 30,000 foot view of what the church is. And here's how we're going to do that. I want us to fast forward to the end of all days. This thing that we're doing together, where is it going? What's going to happen? What, What happens in the end? What does this look like at the end of all days? Well, me and you, we're going to jump in the car with Marty McFly. We're going to go to the future. All right, back to the future, right? Anybody remember the DeLorean, the flux capacitor? All right, right. So, okay, so cheesy, right? So um, jump in. We'll get it up to 88 miles an hour in a minute. We're going, to, we're going to head to the future. Who knows how far? Don't know. Just the heavenlies, right? And here's what we see. And if you want to read this, go to Revelation 5. As we come into the heavenlies, we see the unfolding of the vision of the Apostle John as he wrote in Revelation 5. It's the scene of a majestic lion 
who looks like a conquering lion, and yet when he turns, he resembles a lamb who was slain. This victorious king, this lamb-like lion, is able to take the scroll that no one has been able to open, and he brings the scroll to the gathering around his throne. And we look and there's these four really odd looking creatures, none like we've ever seen before. There's 24 elders dressed in white gathered around this throne. And then there's this angelic host that's there and it's, it's unlike anything we've ever seen. And what are they saying? We, we listen in and there's a song they're singing. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And as they say these words, we look around and we're like, yes, there are people here from everywhere. There's races and different colors and creeds and lists. Oh, this is actually different languages. We see A people gathered of multiple ethnicities, many nationalities, many people gathered, but as one people with one voice, with one heart, many languages, but one voice. And they're not clustered in their distinctions as little cliques. No, they're just scattered like this beautiful mosaic because all the things that made them distinct previously have washed away because now they're unified as one glorious people. And this mosaic of people continue with a joyful shout in Revelation 5. It says, and you, you, O king, have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. Then the four beautiful creatures and the 24 elders and the choir of angels begin to sing as if antiphonally. Like the the chorus of the crowd has sung and now those who are nearest to the throne, they sing a a phrase and they say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then, in response, in unison, all the gathered people and creatures join their voices. And the Bible says voices in heaven, voices on earth, voices under the earth. And then, as if that wasn't crazy enough, voices under the sea. I don't know how that works. All right. But voices under the sea like that's crazy. I'm imagining like a little lobster singing, you know, mermaids on, on a rock. And, but here's what they say to him who sits on the throne. And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and ever and ever. And here we are, looking at this incredible gathering. The scene is overwhelming. It's it's, it's amazing. It's mind-boggling that this is where it's all going. This mosaic gathering of people who have nothing in common. Once they were not a people, but now they are a people. Once they had not received mercy, but now they've received God's mercy. The scene is overwhelming and we begin to wonder, where did this thing begin? Where did all this start? So we jump back in with Marty McFly, right? Throw in another banana in the flux capacitor and... uh, 
rev that joker up, and we hit the road, and we head to the beginning. What we imagine is the beginning. Now, we're not going all the way back to Adam and Eve. Not even going to go back to Abraham and the covenant God made with him, or David and the covenant God made with him, or the choosing of the people of Israel. We want to go where, where the church began. Where was the church born? And maybe you'd think it was with Jesus and his 12 apostles, and, and certainly, certainly that's a beginning point. But we decide we want to go to Pentecost. We want to go to the moment when the Holy Spirit came on the people of God. Because... That's, that's the season in this linear timeline that we live in. And we go there. And here's what we find in the church of the past. The church at its beginnings. What we find when we walk into Jerusalem is um, the city's crowded from people of surrounding regions. It's like there's people from everywhere. It feels like this huge, massive flea market and there's just noise and people are talking right next to us and you can't understand their voices. You can't understand what they're saying because they're not from where you're from. Um, everybody's selling things. It's a, it's a massive, crowded city. Dust is everywhere just from the shuffling of people's feet in the dusty city. And it's just it's tough to get through. And then all of a sudden there's a noise. It's, it's unmistakable. It just draws everybody's attention. Everybody's like, what is that? And it sounds like this mighty rushing wind. And the crowd begins to all shuffle their feet in the same direction toward this noise. They want to go see what's going on. And so we're shuffled with the crowd and we find ourselves at this place where the apostles and the disciples of Jesus are gathered. And there's something has happened. People around me are saying, I think they're drunk, man. These guys are crazy. Something's not right. And then a voice rises above them all, and it's Peter. Peter was declaring Jesus as a resurrected king. And the crowd around is listening in because they just killed Jesus weeks earlier. And the sign above his head said, this is the king of the Jews. And now Peter is saying, this king is alive. You killed him, but he's risen from the dead. And he sent us to tell you, you can be forgiven of your sin. You would expect the people to reject this message. I mean, they had just killed Jesus for claiming to be the king. And now Peter and all the apostles are preaching in, in crazy languages. It's amazing that the crowd around me is all hearing what he says. It's only by the power of the Spirit. He's preaching. A Galilean fisherman is preaching. And this guy understands. And that guy understands. And she understands. And she understands. And they're all from different places. It's a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And as they're listening, they hear Peter say, Repent. and Be baptized. It's kind of shocking to see what happens. But what we see is that the Holy Spirit... Cuts them to the heart. The people who had rejected Jesus are cut to the heart by this message. And that day, the number of Christ followers goes from a little over 100 to 3,000. I just want you to get the, the logistics of what that looks like, okay? Peter's sermon was repent and be baptized. Can you imagine? We baptized two guys last week. It was quite a mess. Um, uh, I got a course this week on how I'm supposed to do that a little better, you know, right? Um, 
So I didn't realize we had a tidal wave. I had women picking up purses and all kinds of stuff. It was amazing. That was two men. Praise God for those two men. We're talking about baptizing 3,000 new followers. This is quite a scene. It doesn't stop after 15 minutes of a sermon. They didn't didn't go to Western Sizzling for lunch. We're talking about quite a scene happening here. Acts chapter 3. Peter and John are on their way to the temple. and There's a man there who's lame and... Um, he's been lame from birth and he, he asked him for some help and Peter says, hey, we don't, we don't have any money. But what we do have, we'll give to you. <laughs> and this man is healed and he rises up. He's, he's been like that for over 40 years and he gets up, he starts dancing, praising God. Well, that draws a crowd, right? Peter takes advantage of the moment and he says, hey, don't look at us. There's nothing to do with us. This happened in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And you killed him. He goes right back to the same sermon. You killed him, but he's risen from the dead. And he wants you to know that if you repent, you can be forgiven of your sin. And what does God do? He adds another 2,000 people. And they baptize another 2,000 people. At the end of Acts 3, we've got over 5,000 people now following Jesus Christ. And I want you to get the picture here. Now, these thousands of people, they're they're not just walking an aisle, getting dunked and going back to life. Because what we read is that they, were, they began gathering daily in one another's homes and breaking bread with each other and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer and to fasting. They became a family. It changed their whole world. It wasn't just a Sunday thing. It was a life thing. You with me? This is the beginnings of the church. And here we are watching these things happen. Acts chapter 4, we see that the people of God are generous with one another. Like they're selling their stuff to make sure each other can pay bills. You know, if, if you're short one month, I'm going to sell my car. Make sure you, you got it. You can handle it. That's the way they live. They were selling all kinds of stuff. We, at the end of Acts 4, we read about Barnabas, who's this incredible encourager. And the Bible just tells us a little bit of his story. It says that he sold his property so that the people, the church, could have um, the money, all that they needed. Well, then in Acts 5, something else happens. We've got over 5,000 people now. It's quite a crowd. By the way, not just 5,000 people. Acts, 5, uh, Acts 4 says it's 5,000 men. Men. It made it really clear. 5,000 men. So there's lots of people now, women, children. In, in the tens of thousands, I would imagine. Acts 5.12 tells us that this crowd, this thousands crowd, are still gathering together every week as one big unit for worship in Solomon's colonnade. Can you imagine 10,000 people gathering every week for worship? This is what's happening. Well, in Acts 5, something happens, big problem. All the generosity stirs envy and pride in the heart of a couple of people. And Ananias and Sapphira, they decide, hey, we're going to, we, we want to we look generous too, you know. We want, we want everybody to look and think well of us. And so here's what we'll do. We're going we're gonna to sell some stuff and we'll, you know, we, we'll bring some of the money and we'll tell them it's all of the money. That'll make us look good. And what we learn in this story is that even though there are thousands of people, we learn that the mission of God is not just to make a big crowd of people. His mission is to make a pure bride. 
Because what we discover in Acts chapter 5 is the people who come with a little lie walk out dead. They don't walk out dead, they're dead. They're carried out dead. Ananias lies and Peter looks at him and says, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? You shouldn't have done that. And then God kills him. And then they obviously conspired this plan because shortly after that his wife comes in and Peter says, is this... Is this all of the money? Is that what you're trying to tell me? I mean, it doesn't have to be all of the money, but is this? Are you telling me this is all of the money? And she says, that's all of the money. We sold property. That's all of it. We wanted to be super generous. And he says, "Mm, you're going to be super dead. I'm sorry. And God kills her. And you go, why in the world would you do that? Like, things are going really well. And then we realize, like I said, that God is more interested in the purity of his bride than he is in some huge crowd. Acts chapter 6, more problems arise. You can imagine there's thousands of people. And so the needs are great. And so a complaint comes up. They're like, hey, we've got widows and orphans and lots of people that are not getting any of the food. You know, we're, dis- we're dispersing it as best we can. But there's some that are just not getting fed. And it's a problem. We really need to take care of these needs. And so the apostles say, okay, well, that's great. Um, we need to be devoted to preaching and prayer. And so let's set up some leaders, some, some deacons, if you will. So let's set up some leaders to serve the people. So they chose seven men. Stephen was among them. They chose seven men to serve the people. These men are full of the Holy Spirit. They, they are bold, powerful followers of Jesus. And they're taking care of the needs of the people. But Stephen, we get a little glimpse into his story because um, he's, God's using him to do some miraculous things. And he's preaching what he's heard preached. He's preaching Jesus Christ as king. And if you'll repent and be baptized and follow him, you'll be forgiven. He's preaching that message and the religious leaders, they don't like it. So they drag him in and they say, Stephen, why are you preaching this way? What are you saying? And Stephen says, okay, here's my chance to preach. And Acts chapter 7 is the longest, most incredible historical sermon you could ever read of how Jesus Christ is from all the way the Old Testament, the fulfillment of all God's promises. And then he concludes in Acts chapter 7 with a striking blow. In verse 51, I think it is, Stephen says, You stiff-necked people. That didn't go over well. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, just as your fathers did, so do you. And he went on to tell them that just as... Just as your fathers killed and abused the prophets of old, you have done to Jesus. The righteous one of God, you've killed him. As soon as he got it out of his mouth, they snatched him up, they dragged him out of the city, they picked up their stones and they began stoning Stephen to death. It's another problem for this early church. So here we are, gathered, watching. We're like, what's going to happen? Are they, is, is a mob of people. We've got thousands of people. Surely there's more of us than there are of them. Let's rush in. Let's rescue this guy. No. No. We're watching as this small crowd of religious leaders are stoning a man. And the life is leaving his body. But he's got one sermon left in him. And as they're stoning Stephen to death. He says, I see the Son of God standing at the right hand of the Father. 
He's looking into the future. Just like we were just there. He's looking into the future. There He is. There's my King. And just as they think they've killed Him, He utters some words that rip their hearts. He says, Father, don't hold this sin against them. And it's reminiscent of the words they heard weeks earlier as Jesus hung on a cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, a great persecution arose because that day gathered there around Stephen as a religious horde of people who were killing him at the approval of a man named Saul. Arms crossed, he's holding the cloaks of these men. He's like, go ahead, throw the stones. And he doesn't leave cut to the heart. He leaves more zealous than he came. And he goes from there, Acts chapter 8 tells us, still breathing threats against the people of the way. Remember what Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Before they were called Christians, they were called people of the way. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, when we say the phrase, by the way, that's where it comes from. People of the way. So Paul goes and he's actually got letters from the church in Jerusalem, from the, the, uh, the religious sect, right? Letters that give him the authority to drag people out of their homes, men and women. Drag them out of their homes and throw them in prison. And he begins to do that. And the church begins to be afraid. And we see a church scatter because of persecution. And you might would think that the enemy is winning and the, the church is being stifled. The light of the gospel is being pressed down, pressed down. Down And then you remember what Jesus said when he promised the Holy Spirit in Acts 1.8. He said, you will receive power and you'll be my witnesses. Where? In all. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Right? Acts 1.8, Jesus makes that promise. In Acts 8.1, you see it fulfilled. And the very tool of the enemy, the persecution of the enemy to try to squash the church is actually what spreads them out to fulfill the command and the mission of God. Isn't that amazing? Acts chapter 9, we see this persecutor become a powerful preacher. Saul is knocked off his horse. He sees the light. He's blinded. Jesus says, you're going to be my missionary to the Gentiles. The church that I'm setting up is going to send you to the Gentiles. And the rest of the New Testament is that story. I want you to imagine a globe for just a minute. A globe. And in Jerusalem, the moment the Holy Spirit comes, a light lights up on Jerusalem. So we've got a dark globe with all the countries and all the, the map is all right here. And a light pops up in Jerusalem. It's the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That if people repent, believe in Christ, trust Him, turn from their sins, get baptized into a body of believers, they'll be forgiven. That's, that's hope. That light immediately is squashed and tried to be snuffed out. And instead of being snuffed out, it just starts popping up all over the map. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And then through Paul, we read the rest of the book of Acts as his journeys of going to Bithynia and Troas and Ephesus and Philippi and Thessalonica and then all the way to Rome. And ultimately, he's trying to go to Spain. He doesn't get there because he's killed. And you know when he's killed? When Nero blames the church for a fire. So I want to talk to you today about a church in eternity. We're finally getting to the notes now, by the way. 
a church in eternity. This is the universal church. It's the invisible church. And it's all believers everywhere for all time. That's who that is. Then there's a church of today. Church in eternity. Church of today. This is the local church. Now listen. We're not a different thing. We're the same thing. But with a local expression. We are a visible portrait of an invisible reality. We're not in conflict with the universal church. We are, in co- we are in cooperation with the universal church. We are trying to bring about that picture around the throne. All peoples of all nations everywhere singing and shouting praises to our great God. We as a local expression are part of this universal reality. So what does First Peter teach us about it? I want to give you four realities. I'm going to take ten minutes, so hold on with me. <coughs> Here they are. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Here's what Peter teaches us about the church. Number one, the church is a people. It is a people. We've already established that, but what kind of people? He gives us three descriptions, and here they are. The church is a chosen race. Peter's writing to the church, and he says, you, plural, are a chosen race. What does he mean by that? Um, Just to be clear, the word chosen signifies grace. It's not of you, it's of Him. You're not here because you're good or better than anybody else. You're here because of God's grace. Amen? I'm here because of God's grace. If you knew more about my past, you would know that. It's only by His grace and His mercy. He chose you. John 15, 16, write it down. Jesus said this to his early disciples, and he still says it today. He said this, you did not choose me. I chose you. That's a beautiful reality of salvation. It doesn't mean we're special. It means he's special. Why did he choose you? Same reason he chose Israel. Grab your Bibles really quickly. This is important. I want you to go with me. Two places in the Old Testament. We'll do this as quickly as we can. Exodus chapter 19. Remember, God is making for Himself a people, a nation, a priesthood. Exodus chapter 19. God has always been a choosing God. He chose Israel, right? We don't have any problems with that. But somehow in the New Testament, when we start talking about God choosing, it rubs us wrong. And I I, I want to encourage you. Let's see the whole picture. All right? Exodus 19. Look at it. Verse 5. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God chose Israel, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Flip over a few pages to Deuteronomy. Why did God choose them? Why? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. I'm sorry, Numbers, Deuteronomy. (laughs) Go to verse 7, or chapter 7. Why did God choose Israel? Was it it because they're special? This will help you answer the question, why did God choose you? Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. To be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Isn't that wild? Now look at verse 7. It was not because 
you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And He goes on, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant with steadfast love for those who love Him and keep His commands to the thousand generations. It's not because you're a better people. It's just because God loves. That's why we sing songs like How He Loves because it's baffling. Why did He choose you? I don't know. He just loves you. It's not because you're better or special. It's because He's awesome. He chose a people. And the second word, a chosen race. What's up with that? That word is the Greek word genos. And some of your translations may say generation. Here's the point. He's choosing and, and forming for himself a new race. You know, the human race is Adam's child. And what God is saying here is I'm making you a new race. You're not going to have Adam's genes. You're going to have Jesus's genes, a new genetic code. I'm putting my spirit in you. It's not just that you have the sin gene of man, you're going to have the holy genes of Jesus. I'm making for myself a new people. A chosen race. Secondly, a royal priesthood. Royal priesthood. Be quick here. So, we are priesthood unto the king. Royal. King. Priesthood. What is that? In the Old Testament? A people had a priesthood. What that meant is this priesthood would go on behalf of the people before God. Here's what Jesus is saying. Here's what Peter is telling the church. He's making you a priesthood. You do not have to come to me to confess your sins and talk to God. I don't have to be your mediator. I'm not equipped to do that. No man on this planet is except one. There's one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. You don't need an earthly priest. We have a high priest. His name is Jesus. A royal priesthood. Thirdly, a holy nation. The word holy means set apart. That's what God chose Israel from all of the peoples. He set them apart. We are to be a set apart people. A holy nation. We are citizens of heaven. Not just earth. We've... I could go for a while right here, but I won't. I'm going to resist it. Pull back, Justin. Pull back. Too many believers are too caught up in earthly kingdoms. Are you with me? We have a greater king. We read in the book of Acts of people who, who have one allegiance... Yes, we submit to the authorities that God has given us because He's given them. And they're from Him and we submit to those authorities. But the minute those authorities go in contradiction to our King, we have one allegiance. And it's to King Jesus. Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. That's the right thing. We have one King. Don't be too married to this country. Can I just tell you that, church? Let's not be too married to our, our country, our, our constitution. You're talking a former military guy here, right? Okay, don't be too married to your country. We have a better country. We have a new king. 
We're to be a holy people set apart. One quick thing about this. When we talk about church membership, it is a separation. It's, there, there's an identifiable marker. You are in the church or you are not in the church. That distinction is hard for us. Like we wrestle with, but we, we feel so exclusive. I don't want to exclude anybody. And I get that. But here's the great reality. In the eternal kingdom, when we stand before a judge, he's going to separate us sheep and goat. There is a distinction coming, and it's better that the world know about it now. The church of Jesus Christ needs to be set apart from the world. Not that we're not welcoming, not that we don't want them, not that we want to love them. We absolutely do, but the distinction is vital. We're to be set apart as a holy nation. I told you 10 minutes, I lied, sorry. Second, the church is the people of God. I'll go quickly. Here we go. The people of God. You can just write under this, we belong to Him. When I say of God, we're talking possession. We're His treasured possession. Third thing, the church has purpose. The church has a purpose. Why are you now a people? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You may proclaim it. How do we proclaim his excellencies? Two ways Peter gives us. Chapter 2, verse 12, he says, um, by your good works, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of salvation. So good works, our works. And in 1 Peter 3, 15, he says, have no fear of them. Don't not, do not be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, always being prepared to give a response to those who ask you about the hope you have. So, with our works and with our words. We proclaim Christ and His excellencies with our works and with our words. Fourthly, how do you become a people? How do you become His people? This is really important. Verse 10 is the answer. You ready? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received what? Mercy. Mercy. But now you have received what? Mercy. mercy. Only by mercy. We don't love that word. We love grace because grace tells us that we get what we don't deserve, right? You're receiving what you don't deserve. You're, you're getting some. Mercy is a little different. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. The only way we become a people is by the grace of God not giving us what we do deserve. And out of that mercy, right? Paul writes in Romans 12, in view of God's mercy, present your bodies as living sacrifices. In view of the mercy of God that you deserve death, hell, but He's rescued, He's brought you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And in view of that, Live this way. So, two calls to us today as a church. Here they are. First thing, quickly. If you've not received mercy, what are you waiting for? Jesus Christ has come and died in our place. What we deserved, He took. He died in your place and then He rose again. 
from the dead so that you can have a living hope, as Peter writes. To know that even if someone took your life, you will be with Him forever. He died in your place. He rose from the dead. And He says to us, repent of your sin. Trust in Christ. Be baptized into the family of God. In this way, receive mercy. Receive mercy. If you've never received mercy, receive mercy. Trust in Christ today. And I'm aware that God has to awaken that in your hearts. I know that. I'm asking Him to do that right now. To open your eyes to see the beauty of this great news. The second thing is this. Many of us are here today. We're talking a lot about church and church membership. And what, why, why should I join a church? Well, because we are a part of that eternal picture. But today. And we're on mission to bring about that eternal picture. And what I'm telling you is it requires a real kind of love. A kind of love that is committed to each other. A kind of love that speaks the truth to one another. A kind of love that chooses each other. What I, what I long to see is, and I've said this a million times and you probably hear it a million more. I long to see a people who gather, who have little to nothing in common. Except Jesus. We don't look alike. We don't talk alike. We don't sing alike. We don't like the same music. We don't dress alike. We don't have... We have nothing in common except Jesus. That is what He meant when He said, I want you to pray this way. Your kingdom come on earth. How? As it is in heaven. Let's be a people who covenant together. There's nothing wrong with that word. Who covenant together to bring that about. Here. Let's be a people who are committed to this. That's not in conflict with committed to that. It's actually a part of that. It's a local expression of a global reality. So what is the church? Better question is who is the church? It's a people. A people who have received mercy. Who are chosen by God to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And God our King is welcoming you in.